A very good evening to you all. Um, welcome to the LSE, those of you who are not normally here or are from time to time here. Uh, and if you are normally here, well, welcome. Uh, I'm uh, Tony Travers uh, with this elaborate title of Interim Dean of the School of Public Policy. Uh, we are indeed setting up a School of Public Policy. Uh, it starts really on September the 1st, so do look on our website, see what excitement that will bring and improvement in every way. Now, um, this evening is really uh, an event about Brexit again. We have a lot of events about Brexit here at the LSE. We try to uh, ensure that over time we are having a balanced series of views, both about what happened in the run-up to the Brexit vote, which is what we're going to hear about really this evening, and what's happening since. We've had a number of events on that too. Try to open out all views. Uh, the LSE exists to have a debate as wide as possible on all views about these matters. Don't have a line on any of this. Uh, and the thing about Brexit, and we were just talking about this as we came down in the lift, is that whatever your view about Brexit, and indeed why the Brexit referendum took place, how the Brexit referendum uh, campaigns were undertaken, and indeed about the result. There's no question that both the process and the result tell us a great deal about the way British politics, British government, and indeed we as a you know, voting group operate. So we've learned an enormous amount about political science from this event, whether or not you think it's a good idea or a bad idea. So I'll say no more than that uh, by way of uh, introduction. Uh, the hashtag is as you can see, hashtag LSE Brexit, and there, feel free to uh, tweet. And uh, we're going to hear from the authors of the book, How to Lose a Referendum. It'll be possible to buy a signed copy or to get a copy signed from the authors at the end, uh, uh, just outside at the end. And uh, the authors are Jason Farrell and Paul Goldsmith. I won't go into their uh, details. If you want to know more about them, you can talk to them afterwards or look in the dust jacket of the book. But um, Jason is the uh, senior political correspondent at Sky News. Paul is the politics and, uh, a politics and economics teacher at Latimer Upper School. And as I was saying on the way down, it, I don't think I've ever seen a book before, perhaps you can explain why, written by a journalist and a, a teacher at a school, which is an unusual pairing. So I'd like to hear more about from you how you came to write this book and why you came to write this book. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Jason Farrell, Paul Goldsmith. Thank you very much uh, to the LSE for having us. Uh, I am Paul Goldsmith, a teacher of politics and economics at Latimer Upper School. I'm Jason Farrell. I'm the senior political correspondent at Sky News. And this book started with a Year 12 student on the 24th of June 2016 uh, in West London, a hotbed of uh, Remain country, in which, and who looked at me and said, how did this happen? And I tried to give her a simple answer, and I just wasn't really able to, so I set myself the project to read as much as I could and come back in September ready to give a better answer than I could give. And uh, I started to look into the history of Britain in Europe, and very quickly, Jason and I uh, were in a car taking our daughters to Peppa Pig World. Uh, they met at primary school themselves, 
Um, and we were having a debate, and I said, I felt that the history of Britain and Europe meant that the Leave vote uh, was always going to happen. And he said the campaign uh, was definitely responsible. Uh, and we had this debate all the way down. Now, people say that's just a, a, a silly story. It can't have possibly happened. Well, here we are on the log flume at <laughs> Pig World, um, just about to go down. You can even see our daughter's heads in the picture. Uh, so... I mean, my reasoning really for getting involved in the book as well was because I was involved in the, on the night, the night it happened, reporting on it, on the day stuff. And I was very keen to have a bite at telling the second draft of history, not trying to explain it that day, but actually taking a little bit more of a reflective, long view at it. And the format of this speech, we are not going to go chronologically. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the campaign and we're going to look at history, and we're going to see how the two things bleed together. So let's start with two campaign figures, two key campaign figures. You can see here Dominic Cummings, the uh, campaign director of Vote Leave, and Will Straw, the executive director of Stronger In. Cummings, described by David Cameron as a career psychopath. <laughs> but he did have a career in politics. In 1999, he had been involved in the, uh, the campaign to, remain, to not go into the euro, business for sterling. He'd also campaigned to not have a Northern Assembly against John Prescott, and both of those campaigns he'd won. Will Straw campaigned to be an MP and lost. Now, in 2015, he didn't have the history uh, of understanding the issues around the European Union. However, what he would have uh, down the line would be the, the campaign machinery, of course, of Downing Street that would come to his assistance. But Dominic Cummings, we would argue, had something much, much more important and we think is significant to the Brexit result and it really actually forms the core of this whole speech that we're about to give. And it is a document that he produced in 2014, which we got for our book. And he was commissioned to produce this document um, by uh, Business for Britain, a guy called Matthew Elliott, who would eventually also run the Vote Leave campaign. And what he, what he was asked to do was to go around the country and get attitudes to the EU from members of the public. And he went to a number of places and he did a lot of focus groups. And I'm going to read you some of the things that people told him in his focus groups. In 2014, this is before we even knew that we were going to have a referendum, a man in North Warwickshire said, if Cameron is so weak he can't get control of immigration, then I'm out. We've lost control because of Europe. A woman in Thurrock said, how much do we spend on the EU? Millions? Billions? Tens of billions? A woman in Hendon said, if we leave, we'll save a fortune and we can spend that on the NHS. <laughs> In this document, which is 19 pages long, control was mentioned 37 times, take back control 15 times. Vote Leave didn't get its campaign slogans from gurus or politicians. Their slogans came from the general public. Eighteen months later, Will Straw did his own survey. Now that we've got Stronger In campaign together, he tries to find out what people think are the positives about Europe. There aren't any. <laughs> he can't find any positives other than a vague sense that people feel it might be quite good for the economy. What he can find is that they think, ooh, a lot of people come over here from Europe, don't we spend a lot of money? 
oh, we've lost control of some of our laws. The three central planks of the Vote Leave campaign, without prompting, came from the mouths of the British public. Sovereignty, budget, immigration. Now, you're not going to agree on all of those things. If you come from Labour and Conservative, you're not necessarily going to agree on how you tackle all those problems. But in this document in 2014, Dominic Cummings came to a fundamental decision which would basically set the tone for the Vote Leave campaign. He said, it's just in one paragraph, he said, there is a general argument that applies to almost any specific area. We are better off if we take back control. In a referendum, it would be important for an out campaign not to take specific positions on any issues. Uh, This would only split the campaign. Instead, the outcome campaign should simply say, whatever you think about X or Y, whatever you think X or Y about Z, the most important thing is that you take back control of Z. Now, while Jason was gallivanting around the country talking to cool people, I was ensconced in the British Library and the Q archives trying to work out when that control was lost. And I came to the conclusion it was probably lost just after the Second World War. Now, the man on the left is Jean Monnet, a civil servant, career civil servant in France, uh, who's the father of European integration. The man on the right is Robert Schuman, the French foreign minister at the time. And Monnet was busy grappling with a major problem after the Second World War. Instead of punishing Germany, what they wanted to try and find a way was to help Germany rebuild without making the French, who'd been invaded every, every generation by the Germans for a long time, longer than anybody in France could remember, uh, worried about being reinvaded again. Now, Monet went uh, on a walking holiday in March 1950, because we know in politics all the best ideas come from walking holidays. And while he was uh, on his walking holiday, he came up with this idea of, that became the European coal and steel community. It was coal and steel that would help Germany to uh, build itself up again. But coal and steel are also used to build arms. If they pulled together coal and steel production, then what they would essentially be able to do is if Germany built a single weapon uh, France would know about it. So he went uh, around the French government and he found Robert Schuman, uh, a man who was prepared to actually uh, talk about this plan. Uh, it says a lot about Monet that this was called the Schuman plan. It's Schuman was the person who, in a press conference on 9th of May 1950, actually uh, announced the Schuman Declaration. And there was a line that, that struck me in this Schuman Declaration. It wasn't particularly long, but it simply said that cooperation between France and Germany would make war between them materially impossible. Now, as we know, uh, what happened was that the Netherlands joined, Belgium joined, Luxembourg joined, and Italy joined. Now, Britain didn't, and Britain didn't for three reasons. It wasn't for want of trying. Monet travelled over on the 10th of May uh, to talk to uh, the British government about joining. But the three reasons were, number one, Britain had won the war. And so Britain didn't need to review its economic and political arrangements in the way other countries did. Our constitution, our way of governing was made in 1688. Most of these countries had to rebuild again after the Second World War. The second issue was that we had our special relationship with the US that we all know about. Uh, We had a a trading relationship with the Commonwealth. uh, And also uh, we had our relationship with the European with Europe, and we felt that those three circles of foreign policy were equally important and we couldn't prioritise any of them. But as you will know also, after 1945, we had the great reforming government of Clement Attlee and the Labour Party. The welfare states, full employment, the NHS, 
You can't have full employment if you have an organization. And what was key was that Monet wanted this organization to be supranational, uh, for it to be able to actually talk about production targets and things like that. You can't have full employment if this organization is telling you to shut down that coal plant um, or to uh, reduce production in their steel factory. And that's why uh, on the 1st of June 1950, when uh, the Monet and Schumann had basically set an ultimatum, uh, Herbert Morrison, who was deputy prime minister at the time, at Clement Attlee was on holiday, his chancellor Stafford Cripps was on holiday, foreign secretary Ernest Bevan was in hospital. Herbert Morrison had to be tracked down at the Ivy in the West End, uh, where he was taken to a corridor uh, by a civil servant. And Herbert Morrison said, it's no good. The Durham miners will never wear it. And this is important. We were not there when the European coal and steel community created, but we got a second chance in 1955. And this was because of a Dutch foreign minister called J.W. Bayen. And Bayen saw that the European coal and steel community worked, and he asked for a meeting of foreign secretaries and other people in Messina in Sicily, where they agreed to see if they could expand this cooperation across all areas of industry and also to create a customs union, free trade within it, external tariff outside. And they decided to invite Britain with no conditions to join these uh, committees, what was then became known as the SPAC committee, named after Paul Henry SPAC, who was a Belgian who was in charge of them. Now, uh, Bayon came over to Britain and he asked the then Prime Minister Anthony Eden um, and Foreign Secretary Howard Macmillan and the Chancellor Rab Butler if they would send their Foreign Secretary, who was Macmillan, to this talk. And uh, Eden did not want to do that. He didn't want to commit himself. He didn't think it would work. Butler said, let's send an observer. Now, Macmillan was already concerned about not being involved in this and what could happen. But he said, can we at least send a representative, someone who we can instruct to say things at these, uh, at these conferences? And so, therefore, at a meeting in Brussels of foreign secretaries of all the other countries, we sent Russell Bretherton, a civil servant with strict instructions not to agree to anything. Now, Russell Bretherton was a trade economist. He'd been Harold Wilson's economics professor in Oxford. Um, and that's what he knew about. Uh, there is one picture of him in existence uh, and one interview from 1982, a radio interview, which is fascinating. And he talks about his experience at this meeting. He would wait for the diplomatic bag every four days to give him instructions. He would then put uh, items in there. And some of these are the very first meeting. He said, this isn't economic, this is political, and it's going to work. I shouldn't be here. We should send a minister, someone who can actually agree to this. Later on, he talks about the fact that if we were actually to get in and try and shape this, we could shape it in our interests. But if we didn't, something would be created that wasn't in our interests. But the British were not interested. Now, uh, Bretherton talks about this meeting that was taking place over the summer of 1955 uh, in a quite amusing way. He says, um, at the beginning, he said, at the beginning of August, uh, we were going to work all the way through the summer. But then all the other delegates realized that they were European, and suddenly they had a grandmother who was ill or a daughter getting married, and so we adjourned till September. <laughs> now... He, brought, he went back to Britain and Spack went with him and, and Paul Henry Spack went to speak to Rab Butler to try and persuade him of this vision of the European, European community as it was to be formed. And Butler wasn't persuaded. In fact, he looked more and more shocked and more and more cold about it. As they left uh, this meeting, uh, Spack turned to his assistant and said, you know, he could have been no more shocked when I appealed to his business and I'd taken my trousers off. Now, what happened was that Bretherton was sent back 
and he was sent back to, in September, and SPAC started losing patience. Now, Bretherton was a, was a career civil servant. SPAC's assistant, Robert Rothschild, said he would sit there with his eyebrows arched, looking at us like we were naughty children. But eventually, SPAC said, you either commit and send a minister, or you can go. And Bretherton's instruction was to read out a piece of paper in which he said, uh, gentlemen, what you're trying to negotiate will never be negotiated. If it is negotiated, it will never be ratified. And if it is ratified, it will never work. Au revoir, and bonne chance. And he walked out. And that's why, when the Treaty of Rome was signed in 1957, Britain wasn't part of it. Freedom of goods, freedom of services, freedom of capital, freedom of labor. We were not part of that. But it's that Treaty of Rome that David Cameron then tried to undo in 2016. Along with other treaties, of course, that have been signed since. But when you try to unpick a treaty, what you really need is another treaty. And just to explain at this moment in time, and particularly when David Cameron made his Bloomberg speech in 2013 and tested the idea of a referendum, you have to bear in mind that he thought he was going to get another treaty. And this is important because he thought this because the Euro crisis was happening. And the Euro crisis had introduced uh, lots of new rules and regulations, particularly for Greece. Uh, the European stability mechanism had been introduced. And it seemed likely that there would be another treaty in order to contain the problem of the Eurozone crisis. But what had ha also happened uh, in that time is that there had been a number of treaties, such as the Treaty of Lisbon, which had been quite problematic and had led to referendums. And some of those referendums hadn't gone the way that the Eurozone would have liked them to have gone. And they decided that they didn't want to have another treaty to unpick again uh, the Acquia Communitaire, which had become uh, 80,000 pages long, a ton in weight. Uh, they wanted to plough on. So I think this is a, is a very significant point when, you look at, when we're going back through the history and we look at how all these treaties mesh together, to think that what David Cameron was trying to achieve uh, back in 2015, ahead of the referendum, was pretty hard and unachievable. And the other thing that it did uh, for the campaign... A couple of things. One is it stalled the Remain campaign until February 2016 because it couldn't really get on until he'd come back with his negotiation. And it also allowed people to say what he should have achieved uh, in his negotiations, in his renegotiations. Uh, fundamental things such as the Sun newspaper saying that he should completely end free movement, the thing that had been agreed uh, in the, the Treaty of Rome. Uh, it allowed Business for Britain to say that we should go back to a purely free-trading arrangement. But, of course, we'd never had a free-trading arrangement. Uh, Howard Macmillan, by the time 1957 came around and France joined, uh, suddenly realised that we should probably do something about this European community. So he asked the Treasury uh, to create some plans and what to do, and the Treasury came up with eight plans, and Plan G uh, was the one that he chose to try, which was to include Britain in a free trade area with the European community, uh, and that would allow Commonwealth imports into Britain to then enter the European community. And the European community said, and I think this will have some resonance today, you cannot have the economic benefits without the political obligations. So eventually Macmillan gave up with that plan and thought, well, let's try and join it. Now, the other person in the photograph is, of course, uh, President Charles de Gaulle of France. And uh, de Gaulle had uh, become president in 1958, and he was the person who was incredibly powerful within the European community, and he was effectively given a veto on whether Britain could join. He's often seen as the villain of this piece, but I don't believe he is. 
Because Harold Macmillan went to America to speak to George Ball, who was a, a Secretary of State, uh, or an assistant to a Secretary of State, and John F. Kennedy. And, they, and he was speaking to them about the fact that he was going to make an application to join the European community. And he was given some advice. Join, and then try and change from the inside, because they're not going to change from the outside. Uh, and Macmillan ignored this. And he sent uh, Edward Heath, who will be back uh, very soon in our story, to Brussels to try and negotiate some changes. But it's important to note, as we know, that the European community is a compromise of many national interests and they won't be unpicked just for one country. De Gaulle started to get more and more frustrated by this approach. He said, I, I need two things to happen. I want you to put Europe first instead of imperial preference. I want you to buy European goods first. We're going to have to put tariffs on Commonwealth goods. Um, and the second thing is that instead of working on defense and nuclear weapons, which at the time was a, uh, an American-British uh, project, uh, work with Europe. And Harold Macmillan decided to double down, went back to America. Nassau met with John F. Kennedy, who offered him a Polaris missile. And Macmillan thought he would be clever and say, oh, can you offer that to France as well? I'll take that back to the call and see how great our relationship was. And the call uh, ended up in a situation at the... Uh, chateau uh, in France of making Macmillan cry with his intransigence on this. Uh, but eventually nothing gave and de Gaulle called a press conference in, in January 1963 in which he effectively said Britain is not ready to join Europe. And in 1967 the same thing happened. Britain was not ready to join Europe. They weren't ready to put Europe first. They weren't ready to put their relationship uh, with Europe in front of their relationship with the, uh, United, in front of the United States. But what Harold Wilson did in 67 that was quite clever was that he left the application on the table. And de Gaulle eventually stepped down and in fact died in 1969. And uh, the application was left on the table and was agreed that we would actually go in on the 30th of June 1970. Now, in a surprise election defeat, uh, Wilson lost and Edward Heath, the most pro-EU Prime Minister we've ever had, became Prime Minister. Georges Pompidou was now President of France and effectively they agreed um, that this application could go ahead and they started to negotiate together but Interestingly, by that time, um, it was pretty late. And the person who found that out was our second Sherpa, after Russell Bretherton, a man called Con O'Neill. Now, Con O'Neill was the lead negotiator between 1970 to 1973. He wrote a report in this negotiation which wasn't published till 2000. And once it was published, we understood why. Because in it, he said, effectively, the negotiations were accidental and secondary, he was told, to swallow all of it. And again, he explained it's because it was that the European community was, there was 20,000 pages in the Acquis Communitaire by now. It was a lot of compromises of nation states. They weren't going to reopen it. And so we had to swallow all of it. Now, what did we have to swallow? I think it's quite important to point out what happened between our first rejected application in 63 and this moment in 1970. First of all, in 1964, two major court cases, one uh, had established that Brussels was the 
uh, any decision that the European Court of Justice made applied to all nation states. And secondly, the European Court of Justice was a superior legislature to other nation states. The Common Agricultural Policy was created and signed. The Common Agricultural Policy, uh, Italy had 23% of its economy uh, agriculture. Uh, France had 22%, Britain 3%, and yet a series of subsidies and minimum prices supported uh, farmers. And the Common Agricultural Policy was involved in what we had to agree to. Uh, the Common Fisheries Policy amusingly was signed at 9 a.m. on 30th of June 1970 uh, by all the countries who saw that uh, Norway and Denmark and Ireland were joining and owned four-fifths of the fish in the European community, which if they joined was suddenly going to become European as well. And there was also the budget, the way the budget was funded. All the tariffs that were collected from things like the Common Agricultural Policy were handed over to Brussels. 1% of VAT, a tax we didn't even have. Serious contortions of our economic and political makeup in order to join this organisation that we'd had a chance to shape and missed it. The budget, of course, became a big issue in the campaign. And uh, there's two slogans here. One uh, you'll recognise, one you may have forgotten. Uh, let me talk about the one you'll recognise. First of all, of course, the disputed £350 million a week uh, based on a budget of £20 billion a year. And uh, most people will have heard the arguments about the fact that, of course, we have a rebate which never leaves the country, that a lot of the money comes back in subsidies uh, and other means to help agriculture and so on and so forth. Now, Leavers could argue that the rebate is something that's negotiated over every seven years. They could argue that um, they don't have, we don't have control over what those subsidies are spent for. And ultimately, you could put a, a, more, you could have put a more honest figure of probably about half that on the side of the bus. And you could have perhaps said that that was... Uh, you know, a, a, a more defendable figure than the £350 million a week. And, of course, this let's fund the NHS uh, is suggested as, uh, I don't know, a suggestion uh, by many of people. It was argued that not necessarily all the money would go to the NHS, and there was a big uh, dispute about that. But the significant thing is a highly disputable figure. Uh, you could say it's a defendable lie. But... It came, in many ways, from this. This was a campaign that was run, in fact, by the same guy, Matthew Elliott. It was a campaign not to change the voting system from first past the post to AV. The No to AV campaign uh, decided that actually quite a lot of people seemed to be quite like the idea of AV. Um, so they weren't going to focus at all on the benefits of AV or fo first past the post. What they were going to do, and as, as an electoral system, what they were going to do was simply focus on the cost. How much was it going to cost to introduce this new voting system? And included in the cost that they came up with was the cost of holding the referendum to decide whether or not to change it. So they came up with a figure of, I don't know, you'll just about to see it here, £250 million. And how are we going to f express that? Ah, let's, what could we spend that money on? Well... This baby could have a maternity unit rather than spending that money on a silly electoral system. And they also had one about soldiers having bulletproof vests. And what they discovered was, and Nick Clegg got very angry about this because he was running the other campaign, was uh, that it created a lot of anger. 
And it created a lot of anger amongst their opponents. And their opponents couldn't stop talking about it. So it got even more publicity. So what they discovered, what, 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 the same guy, Matthew Elliott, when it comes to the referendum, thinks, well, all I need is an unbelievable figure that people are going to talk about and say what I'm going to spend it on. Marvellous. And, of course, he's done his focus group tests, and he knows, because people have already said it, as I told you in the first slide. They've already talked about what we could spend the money on, and they've said the NHS. So this is, this is marvellous. Now, compare that to what the Remain camp did. They got a Treasury report, and they didn't focus test it because they had to get the number from the Treasury, and it was families are going to be £4,300 uh, worse off a year. And nobody believed it. Nobody believed it. It hadn't been focus tested. And the reason that I, uh, Jack, uh, Will Straw says is people didn't believe it because they couldn't possibly believe that leaving the EU would make them worse off. But Matthew Elliott had a slogan that he knew people believed. Now, Matthew Elliott was a student of previous referendums, and one of them was the 1975 uh, referendum. This is, of course, the then-conservative leader, uh, Margaret Thatcher, wearing a very fetching jumper. She was obviously on the Yes campaign to stay in uh, the European community. You won't be surprised to know. Uh, she wasn't the leader of it, though. Uh, the leader was... Uh, Roy Jenkins of the Labour Party, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, Willie Whitelaw, the deputy leader of the Conservative Party, and a man called Jeremy Thorpe that nobody here will have heard of because there hasn't been anything on, on TV at the time. Anyhow, now at the time these were very popular politicians. Harold Wilson uh, and Thatcher stayed out of the way. I don't, I'm not going to talk a huge amount about this referendum for the very simple reason the Yes campaign had t ten times as much money as the No campaign. This wasn't tightly regulated. All the newspapers supported the Yes campaign. Yes, I mean the Express, the Mail, the Daily Telegraph. Uh, the Morning Star and the Spectator did support the No campaign. Uh, but another thing that was interesting was there was very little focus on political union, monetary union, economic union. There was very little focus on sovereignty. What had happened was Charles de Gaulle had empty-chaired the European community for six months and managed to get a national veto for countries if they didn't like a rule. And so all the Yes campaign's leaflets said, we will be pooling our sovereignty together, but even if we don't like something, don't worry because there's a national veto. Now I'm going to be coming back to how we lost the national veto. Um, but also I want to uh, point to a cartoon that Matthew Elliott, uh, who was the chief executive of the Leave campaign, kept in a drawer because this was really important. The No campaign was generally led by political extremists. So you had Tony Benn from the left, Enoch Powell from the right. Um, and the key point was there wasn't a mainstream politician in there. You had the National Front, you had the communists as well. There wasn't a mainstream competition that both the left and the right could vote for. There wasn't someone who could really touch the hearts of voters. And what Matthew Elliott decided to do was go all out to try and get that person inside uh, the Leave campaign. And as to who that person was, I'm going to see if Jason will point his microphone at him. There I am, pointing my microphone at Boris Johnson. And he is holding up some asparagus. And he's telling the audience that asparagus is going to taste better after Brexit. <laughs> he is genuinely saying that. And you can see how seriously Gisela... I seem to have my arm around Gisela Stewart. We are not an item. I just want you to, <laughs> to make that very clear. Um, 
But I think it's important to remember, as we look back on history, uh, how significant Boris was. And I know we, we, we do still see that, isn't it? but as Boris's popularity sort of wanes around, you have to remember that this was the man, obviously, who won London uh, for the Conservatives. And on this campaign, he attracted this huge plethora of cameras. There he is in Truro, and he has the entire traveling circus of press with him and he would be able to get on the airways and he was box office wherever he would go Uh, and I think it's also important to not underestimate how important it would have been to have him in the Remain camp because it's not just the fact that he was in the Leave camp but it was very damaging not to have him in Remain because it left Cameron and Osborne to have to pick up the pieces themselves and also having him on uh, on the Leave camp Uh, freed up Nigel Farage not to have to focus, we'll come on to this later, not to have to focus uh, so much on the conservative heartlands. We have this huge figure here, sidled with Giselle Stewart. And the key point about Boris is is the point that Paul is making. He was only going to join a campaign that would be based around his views on Europe. And as we've established, the research said that people were worried about immigration and the budget. But the thing that he was concerned about was sovereignty. So what Business for Britain did, well, they set up, first of all, Business for Britain. They tried to attract businesses to the Leave campaign, and they tried to get everyone, if you like, in the departure room who would consider leaving if David Cameron didn't come back with the negotiations that they wanted. And they focused their campaign, to begin with, purely on sovereignty. We forget, as, of course, they started to talk about Turkey and immigration later in the campaign, actually... In the months leading up to getting Boris onto the campaign, their entire focus of the Remain campaign was pretty much on sovereignty. And the person who gave away most of the UK's sovereignty, probably more than any other Prime Minister, uh, was Margaret Thatcher. And the way it happened was actually because uh, she had campaigned, as most many people know, between 1979 and 1984 to get Britain a rebate on the, common, on, the, on the budget, so 66% of VAT, based upon the fact that we were, at the time, in 1979, uh, we had the second highest contribution, the seventh highest GDP uh, per capita. Then what happened was she focused her eyes on creating a proper single market, the Single Market Act of 1987. And this was because she had spotted that there were some non-tariff barriers. There were no tariffs between European countries on on goods, but there were non-tariff barriers. You couldn't sell insurance in Germany, certain product standards in, in, in Spain. And she appointed Lord Cofield, and Lord Cofield found 287 of these non-tariff barriers. Now, it's a long story how... The national veto was lost, but effectively what happened was Jacques Delors, who Margaret Thatcher voted for twice as European Commission President, we forget this uh, because uh, she ended up so set against him, uh, said to Thatcher, the problem is with each of those 287 non-tariff barriers, they're in national interests. So you have to relax the national veto in order for them to be got rid of. Perhaps we could have a system of majority voting or qualified majority voting based upon population uh, in order to get rid of them. And Thatcher thought, OK, let's, let's do that. That makes sense. Uh, but only for six months while we do this process. And Delors said, well, I think this is a really good chance as we expand the European community to make sure no one can come in and block these things again. So we should have qualified majority voting on, on more areas. Um, and... 
effectively, Thatcher was worried about it, but civil servants tried to salve her about it. She said, this is, surely this is going to be used as a backdoor to bring in business regulation, but she was calmed about it. There was also a line that uh, Delors put in, second line of the preamble, that says, we reaffirm our commitment to European Monetary Union, which she again questioned. And they said, oh, it's the thing they always put in every communique. I wouldn't worry too much about that. Um, <laughs> So the European Single Market Act, or the Single Act, was signed in 1987. Delors immediately set up the Delors Committee to create European Monetary Union, and two years later um, actually reported back and said a three-stage process, the exchange rate mechanism to bring everybody's exchange rates together, uh, the economic policies being brought together, and finally a single currency. Now in order to do that, a treaty had to be created. And that was uh, the, the European heads of governments. Thatcher had gone by that time. John Major was involved. It was the very first thing he was involved with. Uh, met in a Belgian town, which I'm sure you haven't heard of, called Maastricht. Hmm. Now, Maastricht, the Maastricht Treaty was the, the, the time when proper Euroscepticism in this country was born. And the, this is a picture of what we know as the Whipless Eight. Um, I think someone's just called, uh, mentioned the name that John Major had for some of them, uh, which I will explain in a minute. Their big problem with the Maastricht Treaty, and uh, Gisela Stewart's problem with the Maastricht Treaty, and other people's problem with the Maastricht Treaty, was that it changed the name of the European community, cooperation, to European Union, integration. It introduced the concept of European citizenship, which is a step on from freedom of movement of workers. It means that a Slovenian can come here and have the same rights as we can have in Slovenia, cannot be dis uh, uh, discriminated against. And it set a proper timetable for the European uh, Monetary Union and the Euro. But this is key. It created a two-speed Europe, not a two-destination Europe. The architecture that was to be set up within Europe was to benefit Euro countries, people in the Eurozone. And Britain was going to have to be in the slow lane if they didn't join the Euro, which there was very little chance of happening after we had dropped out of the exchange rate mechanism on Black Wednesday in 1992. Now... Uh, there were a series of votes on the Maastricht Treaty, which became closer and closer and closer. John Major's uh, majority was very small. And then one day in 1993, he called a vote of confidence, which he just about won. And he had an interview, and Michael Brunson, who was the uh, ITN uh, interviewer, said to him at the end, as uh, they were packing up, he said, well, what about these people who voted against you? And he said, aren't, aren't you going to withdraw the whip from him? And he said, well, consider what we, you would do in my position. He said, you want these people, you want these bastards, he said, inside the tent, uh, pissing out. Now, little known to him, while these people stayed in the party, there was already someone outside his tent unzipping his flies. <laughs> so, Nigel Farage left the uh, party over Master. He thought the bastards were actually uh, lily livered about it in the end. He thought that they uh, backed down. He wasn't going to back down, and he left... Uh, the Conservatives to kind of get involved with UKIP. Now, I'm not going to talk much about uh, his, his, uh, the whole long history of how UKIP helped bring the referendum. I just want to make two points about Nigel Farage. And I want to refer to a maiden speech he made when he became leader of UKIP in 2006. He said about the other main political parties, he said, you can't put a cigarette paper between them. And that's why there are nine million people who don't vote in general elections, who did back in 1992. Now, if you compare that speech that he made in 2006 to the speech he made the night before the referendum, 
in 2016. He said, if you've never voted before because you think voting won't change anything, tomorrow is your opportunity to make a difference. Go out and do it. Ten years, for ten years, Farage recognised that there was a group of voters who didn't vote. A group of the electorate, if you like, who were potential voters but didn't vote. And that three million extra people who voted in the Brexit referendum who didn't vote in the general election of 2015 probably swayed the result. And he realised that, and that's where he focused his campaign. Now, a lot of people will say that the reason the Brexit result happened the way it did is because Nigel Farage stirred up hatred around immigration. And there's evidence to suggest that, certainly in a lot of the poster campaigns and things that he's done. And I will talk about that again a little bit later. But I would like to make the point that post-Maastricht, and for a long time, Nigel Farage didn't care about immigration. In fact, when he stood as an MEP in, uh, I think it was uh, 1999, first time, and uh, he was voted, immigra- it was voted in uh, onto the um, European Parliament, he didn't mention immigration at all in any of his literature. Um, and in fact, in that, he was voted in Winchester Town Hall, and alongside him was Daniel Hannan, who obviously would become a significant figure as well. Um, so it, it's important to notice that he didn't... But, What happened then was, I think it was around about 2006, when he was in the Bromley and Chislehurst by-election. I interviewed him about this. And he said, it was around that time I was knocking on the doors and Labour voters were coming up and talking to me about immigration. And that was the first time, that by-election, that UKIP beat Labour. And he reckons it was at that moment that very subtly, and soon after not so subtly, UKIP retacked and rejigged its message onto immigration. A uh, third point to make about Nigel Farage, excellent taste in books. Anyhow, <laughs> this is really, really key, because this is the third strand uh, of what happened. Now, this is Tony Blair, the most pro-EU Prime Minister after Edward Heath, and this is Gerhard Schroeder, who was the German Chancellor around the same time. They had elections around the same time as well. And one of the amazing achievements of the European Union was to say to the Eastern European countries, please come and join us when Russia withdrew, please come and join us, uh, become democratic, trade with us. And the two treaties, uh, Amsterdam and then Nice, at the end of the 1990s and early 2000s was about that. Blair came back and could have just said, I've basically contributed to the EU, creating peace uh, in Eastern Europe, and instead talked about opt-outs to Schengen and things like that. But one of the things that was obviously going to happen was that a lot of these countries had a GDP per capita of half of the countries in Europe, which hadn't happened before, and so there would be a lot of immigration into the countries of the European Union at the time. Now, Schroeder had an open discussion with the population in Germany. In fact, uh, he made some speeches in the run-up to uh, his, uh, his re-election in 2002 about the, his intention to bring in transition controls for seven years to try and manage the influx of uh, Eastern European immigrants. In the 2001 manifesto uh, of the Labour Party, which they won by a landslide, there's barely any mention of immigration at all. It was never really discussed. And the problem with that is because immigration wasn't discussed at all. There was no real mandate for what then happened. 
1st of May 2004, uh, when the accession countries joined, uh, a load of people started coming into this country. Now, overall, GDP-wise, fantastic for the country. Um, However, they do have localised impacts. Now, an MP has written to me, a minister, in fact, from that government has written to me privately and said that they tried to persuade Blair and Brown to introduce a migrant impact fund, so money to follow where immigrants go, and some money for training people to be able to compete with people who are highly skilled as well. And Blair and Brown didn't want to do it because it would be admitting that there was a problem. Anyway, what then happened was, in 2006, this man, John Denham... Now, John Denham isn't a Tory, he was a Labour minister from Southampton. He's not from north of England, from Southampton, Itchen, in the south. He'd written a memo to Blair and Brown, he couldn't talk about it publicly, telling them about life in Southampton for some of his constituents. So what was supposed to happen was that uh, when uh, immigrants came to the country, they would be put on a workers' registration scheme, and that would allow schools to expand and hospitals to expand and, and public service provision to expand with it, which would have been fine. The problem was a lot of the people were in construction and worked self-employed, so they weren't on the workers' registration scheme. He said for builders in his community, wages had gone down by 50%. 50%. Also because people in Eastern Europe weren't used to the concept of a GP. They were going to accidents and emergency for things you'd normally see in a GP, so it was hard to get an appointment there. And it was hard to make sure there were school places because, again, uh, the government didn't really know where they were. Now... The problem was with this now was that even his memo was sort of ignored. He said, can you please do something about this? Uh, uh, the migrant impact fund, uh, training for, for workers. In South Seals, um, there, were, there were construction workers who, whose pay went down by 33%. The problem was, was that uh, when you have globalisation, when you have lots of movement, it's going to cause some problems. There are going to be losers. It's what globalisation really happens with globalisation. And Branko Milanovic, who is an uh, an economist, uh, in 2008 published this graph. Now, it's called the elephant chart. And what this is, you've got real increases in income over 20 years from 88 to 2008. And then you've got the percentile of global income distribution. What this simply means, if if you're not sure about these things, is that the person here is the 80th percentile. He earns the 80th highest income Um, in the world. There's 80% of the world's population are below him. Now, this group here, over 20 years, had an enormous increase in income. Tends to be the Chinese middle class. There were lots of jobs available. Uh, British firms were outsourcing uh, to China and India and places like that. You've got this 1%. The only time the graph isn't, these dots aren't every 5% here. The 1% whose income went up hugely. And then you've got this group whose real income fell over 20 years. These are the working class, and in America they're called the middle class, in developed countries. Telling them that they couldn't complain about what happened to them, calling them racist, is probably not the best option. Given that they genuinely had trust in their government to help them, and that help wasn't coming. And this led, in the end, to... Uh, a lack of trust in government. And bear in mind, no one was talking about this in the 2000s. You were generally labelled a, a racist. If you, if you asked the Prime Minister Gordon Brown during a 2010 election about immigrants, you were called a bigot and things like that. But effectively, what happened was, when you don't allow mainstream discussion of an issue, it opens the door to extremists. It opens the door to the Nigel Farages of the world. It opens the door to the Donald Trumps of the world too. People lost trust in their governments.
The other thing that happened uh, was there were four main crises uh, which I think were fundamental to the Brexit decision that were, this is really our recent history, uh, that were happening at the time. And partly they were drivers to David Cameron's decision to hold a referendum. But ironically, they were also the things that would help him lose it. The terrorism crisis, which was currently, at that time, contained to European cities, Paris, Brussels, hadn't had uh, the uh, attacks in Manchester, for example. We hadn't had the London Bridge attacks. Those happened after the Brexit results. So people saw that there was terrorism on the mainland of Europe. We'd obviously had the financial crisis of 2008, um, and we'd had the euro crisis very much uh, thought of as we, we obviously weren't part of the euro, weren't we right not to join it, all those people said we should have done. And of course, we had the migration crisis, which was in full flow as we came up to those uh, crucial uh, months leading into the referendum. And it's interesting, Dominic Cummings says rather crassly that these images were worth millions in advertising to the Vote Leave campaign. He said that in an interview for our book. Millions in advertising. But what helped him in, in, with that advertising, when we think about Nigel Farage's poster, the Breaking Point poster, and how heavily criticised that was in the week of the campaign, I just want to give you a couple of quotes and to, from 2015 about the migrant crisis. Uh, we have one here from Theresa May, uh, the, that Europe needs to get on with the job of breaking the link between economic migrants making a dangerous journey across the Mediterranean and settling in Europe. Most of them were not economic migrants, so that's not only factually uh, inaccurate, it's also quite a disparaging co comment about these migrants. Uh, let me give you one from uh, the, um, David Cameron. This is, there is a swarm of people coming across the Mediterranean, seeking a better life, wanting to come to Britain. Harriet Harman had to tell him that he should remember that he's talking about people, not insects. The point I'm making is that actually these people who would eventually try to campaign to remain in the EU had said some pretty disparaging things that probably hadn't helped pe form people's views of uh, the migration crisis. And of course, fundamentally, these other two crises, the Euro crisis and uh, the economic crisis 2008, did something else that was very fundamental for campaign and led to this quote from uh, Michael Gove, that people had had enough of experts. People looked at what happened to the Eurozone and thought we were wrongly, we were wrongly told that the Eurozone uh, was going to be a good idea. And I bring you a quote from uh, that document I mentioned from 2014, Dominic Cummings, who said, in 2014, the motives of big business are very suspect. People think of them as speaking for their own corporate interests, not the nation's interests. It's far from obvious that having Goldman Sachs on the side of in is an advantage. And that was the problem for the Remain campaign. At the end of the day, they knew that people really cared about immigration, they cared about the budget, uh, they cared about sovereignty. What they had was Project Fear, this vague sense that the economy might be worse off if we left the European Union. But all they had was that vague sense backed up by experts by which point those experts have become damaged goods. Ultimately, we are where we are because the British people never got this. This is President Mitterrand of France 
and Chancellor Helmut Kohl of Germany. They are at a memorial for uh, the Battle of Verdun, which is the First World War uh, battle. And it was about, uh, this is about the mid-80s. Forty years had passed without even a sign of war. Both of these men, I think Mitterrand definitely fought in the Second World War. Anyway, as the music played, they started holding hands. They couldn't, they don't know why, even to this day. But they started holding hands, and it seemed to make sense. Remember the British won the war. The price of victory was that they didn't have to consider what an astonishing achievement the European Union was and the benefits it would have to them. Margaret Thatcher was shown this picture, and the civil servant said, well, isn't that pretty amazing? She said, well, it's just two old men holding hands. The problem is, is that this is a political union, and it means something to the hearts of Europeans that it doesn't mean to British people. And certainly our political uh, masters, our prime ministers, never really sold it and explained the benefits to the British people. And that's why David Cameron, when he came to decide whether to hold a referendum, history was pointing a gun at his head. And the bullets were live. He chose, though, to pull the trigger. And here we are. Thank you very much for listening. Okay, we've got uh, just under, just up to about half an hour for questions and answers. And I just want to get the ball rolling. I'm sure there'll be plenty. Um, the thesis that you just put forward very eloquently, very elegantly, is a mixture of, forgive me if I'm oversimplifying, it was all a long time in the coming. It was built up, accreted over year after year after year of British attitude, British political behavior, and so on. But also that the campaign also mattered. Mm. So what sort of... Uh, this is a, so you started in the car on the way to Peppa Pig World, really, wasn't it? On, so, on balance. So what balance? Would, would you... 70-30, On balance, I bow to the idea that history was more significant than the campaign. Okay. I, I do think it was more... I, 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 you, right. I, think, I think it was right. Yeah, yeah well, I think it was right. Then. Got out of the way, then. But the, the, the problem was, was that uh, we, read, we read each other's chapters and we linked our chapters together a lot and we read it a lot. You couldn't escape the feeling that having missed the chance to shape the European, what the European project in our interest, had to contort ourselves so much to get in and then to have had so many years of no one really explaining the benefits of European Union properly, by the time it got to the campaign, it was just too late. And the most inter the interesting part of Jason's book was Dominic Cummings talking about the, the focus groups and then Will Straw talking about the focus groups, both floating voters. The floating voters in, in Will Straw's focus groups, organized for Remain, could just reel off borders, immigration laws and couldn't say a benefit to the EU. That was a long time coming. So the Remain campaign actually was pretty good. After I'd written my bit, I thought they would lose 70-30. The fact that they got it to 52-48 was quite an achievement. And, and you could argue that you're both right in the sense that, I mean, with a really bad campaign, or not a good campaign, it, wouldn't have, it was only, you well, know... 5248. Well, so the campaign could have made the marginal difference. You, 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 yes, the campaign could have made a marginal difference, but it, is very, it was always very tempting to say, oh, the winners ran the great campaign and the losers uh, ran a terrible campaign. And that was certainly my view. Um, at, at the time, there, there were certainly mistakes made by uh, the Remain camp. And there were certainly clever things done by the Leave camp. 
But there was also a massive disorganisation within the Leave campaign. Um, at times they looked like they were going to implode, they were going to get rid of Cummings and all the rest of it. Um, the Remain campaign actually ran a message that, it, although it was badly handled, was pretty hard, it's still pretty hard to say, without doing it historically, how to sell, sell the benefits of the European Union in the time that they had. And, you know, economic, you know, looking at economic benefits, I mean, people don't get what £4,300 a year GDP is going to do to them. They, they probably should have gone for, actually, I think it translates to £80 a week. You're going to be £80 a week, worse off. Probably a simpler thing for people to digest. They could have simplified the message. And actually, the funny thing is that they lost faith in that message very quickly. It didn't work after the first week, and they stopped talking about it. And I actually wonder whether that was a mistake, because, you know, they, they actually started to fall into the trap of talking about the bus and the other things. So they actually might have had the right message. They just forgot it. But I also want to, I can say this because he wrote it, the, the best chapter in the book is called Agent Corbyn, which is uh, chapter 15, I think it is. And we haven't mentioned Jeremy Corbyn in this talk, and the reason why is that his in influence on this referendum is very overstated. The truth is, when Jason went around the north of England and talked to people about the, the referendum, they said that they were already planning to vote leave, regardless of who the leader was. And there was nothing Corbyn could do. We actually found that... Corbyn was disinterested, really, in the referendum. It wasn't that he was a Brexiter. Yes, he'd always voted against integration, but he had never, ever spoken in Parliament about it. It wasn't something he was that interested in. And because Jeremy Corbyn tends to be, try and be authentic, he couldn't muster the enthusiasm. But that is not what made the 1.2 million vote difference. A lot of lifelong Labour voters were ready to vote leave because of the reasons we, we had talked about. Yeah. And so we actually found, uh, in the end, the conclusion in the chapter is that that even if they'd had an enthusiastic Labour leader stomping around the country, it still wouldn't have made a difference. OK, let's take uh, two or three. Let's go for a starting point and some questions. OK, I can see uh, a couple of hands here. Let's take these two here. And if you want to say who you are and where you come from. Um, uh, thank you very much for your uh, insightful analysis. I've got two points I want to raise, and I wonder if you have covered it already. First, I, on the point of immigration, you, um, I wonder if you have covered that, that there is a significant um, uh, amount of voters, which may be from uh, South Asia. Those, they believe that the the, EE, the EEA immigrants are taking their quotas uh, that... Um, that will make them harder to bring their, you know, their dependents in. They voted leave because they thought that, okay, we can bring more of our uh, relatives in easier. And I wonder if this is a significant factor as far as you, can, you have found. The second is, I wonder if you have factored in the, the point that some, a, lot, a lot of uh, British voters might not identify themselves as European at all. They might see themselves, you know, especially those from Commonwealth, they might, you know, never believe they are Europeans, so they might never buy into that this, you know, European thingy. They, yeah. So okay. maybe there is. A, okay, we get the book. Yeah. Very good. And come across here. And yeah. it would be. Yeah, I'd like a third question. I'd like to have a female question. A third, if I can have one, please. Somebody likes balance here. A bit of a balance, can I? 
Somebody, well, wait. No, not another. All right, we'll take the gentleman here next. You've got the, with, the, with the green, yeah, the microphone in your hand. Um, you mentioned the importance of sovereignty, immigration, and the budget, um, all of which sort of have their roots in EU supranationalism. And given that EU supranationalism has its roots in the, um, can't really pronounce it, Van Kent and Luce case, and given that that would have sort of happened regardless of whether the UK was in from the start or not, was it fair to say that the UK joining would have actually had an impact, even if it had been before the Rome Treaty? Okay, and I just want, can I have a third question? I haven't had any female voices so far this evening. I'd really like to have one. Wonderful. Thank you. We've got two now. Both of you next. In fact, have you next, and then I'll come to you afterwards, if I may. I've three at a time. Thank you. Um, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the the divides in the way that the UK voted. So a little bit about, um, for example, London voting Remain, why you think that happened versus the North voting primarily to leave. London versus the rest. Okay, three excellent questions. I'll leave you to carve them up between you. Uh, yes, so the Asian community in um, Birmingham and across the Midlands very much had that view. Uh, and we do talk about it in the book. And uh, there's one Labour MP who, who who done quite a lot of research on this and was actually a supporter of um, the Vote Leave campaign, unusually for a Labour MP. And uh, that was precisely because of that reason. Um, and also a lot of those people from um, Asia had small businesses and those small businesses found they found were hit by regulations um so so there's sort of like businesses in in birmingham for um metal refining or something like that and you had to use certain chemicals or certain chemicals you couldn't use and they felt that that was making them uncompetitive just as one example so uh there were quite a few reasons why you know people from that community did vote to leave and that definitely happened in places like birmingham um just answer just to answer your second question on on europe or british um, one of the issues that uh, i think one of the mistakes the remain campaign made that i hope they don't make again it's not about British or European, you can be British and European. And that's something that I think next time, if there is a next time, or if there is a second referendum, or if they ever did it again, or if there's another country, the country, the, the, the campaign that is campaigned to remain or return has to identify the fact you don't have to choose. You can be both uh, British and European. Um, and, I, and I think that was a, that was a mistake in, instead of trying to, trying to say between the two. Um, I just want to... The Van Gend and Luce case, instead of... Yes, in case. You, Anyone wants to know? It was in 1964, and it was a Dutch company, and they wanted to put tariffs uh, on a German company. And uh, the the German went to the European Court of Justice and said, I thought thought we're not supposed to have uh, tariffs. Um, And uh, the European Court of Justice said, well, yes, we agree. If if it applies to one... There's no excuse. If it applies to one nation-state, it has to apply to everybody. There was a second case called Costa versus ENEL, and the Italian uh, government were trying to nationalise, uh, I think it's the energy market. Costa was a shareholder who said this went against uh, his particular interests. So, and the European Court of Justice were able to tell the Italians not to do it and said, well, our legislature is more important. The key thing about these cases was you're absolutely right. They probably would have happened anyway because they were central to how European supranationalism works. Um, but that's the point. That is how European supranationalism works. 
and that's what wasn't really understood at the time of the 75 referendum, wasn't, certainly wasn't understood when we joined. Even legal experts hadn't quite realised that that was the case. And the moment when it really hit home in this country was the factor tame, and I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, which was uh, some Spanish, it was a set of Spanish fishermen. And what they had decided to do was to get round the British quotas on fish by registering themselves, this is about the late 80s, in Britain as, as British. And so the Merchant Shipping Act 1988 was created in Parliament, which said you had to be three-quarters British in order to create a company. The Spanish firm, Factor Tame, went to the European Court of Justice and said, but hold on, it's freedom of movement of capital. We can set up business and work in any country. And the European Court of Justice then, in, then told the uh, Parliament that it couldn't apply this act. And it went all the way to the Law Lords, which is the predecessor of the current Supreme Court. Um, and the Law Lords said, you know what, that's actually right. If we're going to be part of the European, European Union and the European community at the time, uh, we really have to follow this case and we, we have to set aside the Merchant Shipping Act. And what two interesting things happened there. One, that, that actual Law Lord de declaration was just before Margaret Thatcher went to a, a Council of Ministers, I think it was in Rome, where she voted once again against uh, all the other council of ministers. She was voted down 1 to 11 and went to Parliament and said, no, 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 about Jack Delors' plans. Uh, but the second thing is that, I think his name is Teddy Taylor, who was a Conservative mm. MP, stood up and walked out of Parliament and said, there's no point in us making laws here because we're now no longer the sovereign body making laws. And so that's the significance of Dan Genden Luz and of uh, Costa Ianiel. It is part of what being in it should be. And do you want to answer London? about London versus North? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One is the thing that Nigel Farage identified about people who don't vote. Uh, there was definitely a bigger turnout um, of those specific uh, groups within um, northern cities. I think the issue around um, immigration within certain Labour heartlands was more keenly felt. And certainly when I went round and um, spoke to... Uh, people in a northern mining. I went to a, a northern mining club uh, and did a kind of straw poll of voters uh, there, and not 90% of them uh, voted uh, for for Brexit. And the um, the local MP put it that, and I think I think in that particular area they had um, a sports direct factory as well that had been set up. That was. Uh, so they'd lost jobs in the mining industry and they'd gained jobs in Sports Direct Factory, but actually it was Europeans doing the, doing the jobs. And the MP said, you know, actually the, the community here, they, they, they I remember he said, they, 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 they like their Polish neighbours, they get on with them, they probably prefer them to the guy who was there before, um, but they're worried about their jobs and they're worried about... Um, their children's jobs and what's going to happen down the line. Uh, and then you look at areas where actually there wasn't that much immigration. And, you, you know, you look at London, obviously it's massive immigration here. Um, but it hasn't quite had the same impact on, on people's uh, jobs. And I, I, I do believe that there's, there, was, there was certainly like a there may be potentially a fear factor of people who hadn't had uh, immigration but feared that that was something that might happen. But then there was also some quite interesting research done by The Economist, I think it was last year, where they looked at market towns that voted for Brexit. And what they found was that it wasn't um, the level of, necessarily the level of immigration um, that you would see in London, 
but the increase mm. in immigration was dramatic. So over the increase over the last 10 years, if you look at those figures and compare it to who voted for Brexit, um, that is quite telling. I've grown up in a multicultural community all my life, but also I live in London. Uh, and essentially, if I lose my job, there's thousands of other places I can work uh, because London is so vibrant, has so many businesses in. If you live, for instance, uh, there's a story I was told about Grimethorpe. Grimethorpe's near Barnsley. It applied for EU structural funding and got EU structural funding, which then subsidised ASOS to locate a large factory there. Uh, the idea was to employ the unemployed, long-term unemployed of Barnsley as manufacturing had died. And um, what happened was when, uh, allegedly, when ASOS went to start hiring people, uh, they, they needed recruitment uh, agents who kind of said, but why would you pay these long-term unemployed people that money when we can go to Bulgaria and Romania and get people who are as more skilled, will work longer hours, and will even have lower pay? And so what ended up, this 4,000-strong factory, is, again, uh, you had the same example, Sports Direct, a lot of immigrants, and then Barnsley has seen a lot of change as well. And, and there aren't many other options in those cities if you are there and then the major employer shuts down or another major employer grows up and then you don't have access to those jobs. And it's quite difficult to persuade people that that is a good thing, whereas people who grow grown up as I have, I, I'm just used to it. Okay, now there's another person, another a questioner, another hand that went up the tight. Yes, another female questioner, where was that? Just behind. There you are. Thank you very much. And then the man there, over here. Uh, okay. My question was just to say you didn't elaborate very much on the effect of the press on, on it, and I'd be interested in your views of that. <laughs> very good. And over here, to you. Um, hello, I'm Greg. Um, what do you think are the similarities between the rise of right-wing populism in America in Britain that led to Brexit, and also in the EU, such as in Hungary and Poland? Okay, well, it's sort of tangential to the referendum, but I'm sure our speakers have a view. Uh, everybody has a view. And there's another arm, yeah, there. Try and keep them on up to the 23rd of June and in the UK, if possible. So, so talking about winning or losing referendums, I heard a, a um, leader of a referendum in Ireland a few years ago saying one of the vital things was to challenge the, the, the impediments to people voting uh, for, their pop, for their point of view and, and really understand it and get into it and you know, put the alternative viewpoint in, in front of the, the population. And that, that clearly didn't happen in terms of immigration in the UK, in the EU referendum. And I'm told that that was because um, Cameron just wouldn't allow it to be discussed, wouldn't allow it to happen. Is that true? And, you know, yes. is, is anything going to change it's next time? Go on. Is that, yeah, they, they wanted to have a, an immigration day. And it was, an, it, was, it was an idea that was put out by, uh, it was Nick Clegg pushed for it, and McGrory, who was obviously part of, who was McGraw, James McGrory was Nick Clegg's advisor and his fundamental kind of part of the uh, campaign team. And uh, they wanted to basically put out a, and we got hold of the transcript actually, and I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it goes along the lines, yes, we have immigration, but here's what it does for the NHS, here's what it does uh, for the economy, and actually, 
if you look at the net contribution of migrants uh, coming into the UK uh, and the amount they pay in tax as opposed to the amount they take in welfare, it's much higher. And this, uh, I think, is I, when I interviewed Nick Clegg about this, it was his view that it may have had a, uh, an impact on, on, the, on the campaign. And also, it would have given uh, the anyone who's asked that question about immigration, uh, you know, the tools to say, well, you know, I don't necessarily agree with David Cameron on everything, if they're a Labour politician, but I can agree with him on this, on immigration. This is X, Y, Z. The, the, the problem and the reason they didn't do that is because Cameron had set a target for, to bring immigration down to the uh, tens of thousands. So as soon as a Conservative st stepped into a room uh, to talk about immigration, they were going to get that thrown at them. And if a Labour politician stepped into the room, then they were going to get the, what uh, Paul was talking about, the you Blair allowed all this to happen, didn't he? Uh, so, so on and so forth. Uh, so no one, really had, uh, the, no one really had the appetite to take it head on and say, right, let's... And, and, and I think it was felt by Cameron that a day talking about immigration was a day lost. If you take that day off the grid, that's a day you're not talking about the economy. Uh, so that was his view, and other people in the campaign disagreed with him. But that conversation definitely happened. It happened about two weeks before uh, the, the vote, and it was, it was pulled. And before uh, Jason comes back to talk about the press, I do want to answer your populism question. Uh, one of the ways in which uh, people who are sad about Brexit uh, make themselves feel better is that they can categorise voters, and I'm not saying you're doing this, as, oh, they're just the right-wing racists, but 33% of Labour voters voted uh, for Brexit as well. And left, there was a left-wing case uh, for Brexit too, um, in particular to do with... Uh, things that the government can or cannot do and power for the government to be able to help people and things like that, plus sometimes immigration as well. Um, I would also point out that um, in terms of populism, the problem is one of the reasons why Nigel Farage was so successful in getting people out to vote, 2.6 million people voted in 2016, more than 2015, was because in the 2015 election, 4 million people had voted for UKIP and they got one seat. And so he could genuinely say, general elections don't work. This is your one chance to make a difference to your life. Can't tell you what the, the difference will be, but this is your one chance <laughs> to make a difference to your life. That was also incredibly significant. And Caroline Lucas, in a debrief afterwards, said this is the election system again because they managed to get people out um, as well to do it. Um, and the most important thing, and I think that this is the link to Trump, a lot of policies have been made in the past 20 years, and this, this goes back to uh, this graph here. A lot of policies have been made in Washington, where the benefits accrue to Washington and New York and Los Angeles, but the costs are paid in Ohio, the costs are paid in Pennsylvania, the costs are paid in Idaho, the costs are paid in Mon Montana, in, in, in other places. A lot of decisions have been made in London, where the benefits go to London to the banking and the financial services industry, but the costs are paid in the north of England, in Wales, in other places. Um, and in truth, nobody talked for those people, and no one was there to represent them. In fact, when they complained, they tended to be uh, called lazy, bigots, whatever it was. And I think there is a link between it. As to what's happening in Europe, uh, what's happening in Europe is essentially if you're on the line where the, the, the migrants are coming through, it's something you're worried about. But these countries are also going through a stage in their politics we might have gone through many, many, many years ago. And so we're not exactly sure how it's going to play out in, to in the end.
press. I don't know if you mentioned this in your speech when you were talking about the um, when you showed the cartoon of uh, all the radical uh, people who joy who supported the original campaign, but it was pretty much the same with the newspapers as well. Which was the Morning Star? And the Spectator. And the the Spectator were the only publications that supported not joining, whereas that obviously changed over over time. I I think that one of the reasons is quite an obscure one, but when uh, people were sent to Brussels to become Brussels correspondents, um, there wasn't much interest, really, in the UK in, in stories coming out of Brussels. And um, so they sort of come up with things that they could get on the front page, uh, such as, you know, Brussels are trying to make your bananas straight, or they're trying Shop to change the, uh, the, the, the suction power on, on vacuum cleaners. And, of course, the, uh, the, 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 the telegraphs... Uh, Brussels correspondent was very good at this. A chap called his name uh, Boris. Oh, Boris! Boris yeah, that's right. Boris Johnson. Now you've probably forgotten. And uh, yeah, go on. Go on. No, no, I was going to say the other thing is that seeing this car- excellent, fascinating cartoon, the school earns one of its own of Jack. But I'll pause on that. Why we bought it? Um, not this one, but another one. Um, is that places that most strongly voted to l- remain? In, 19, in the first referendum in 1975, tended to be the places that were most likely to vote to leave in 2016. Isn't that fascinating? They felt cheated. Well, Maybe. it was sort of rural areas that voted strongly to right. remain, most strongly to remain, and places like Scotland and London were least enthusiastic mm. in 1975. Just that reminded me. Uh, now we, but we picking think, up on the point oh, yes, about the press, the, about the press. The press uh, uh, that kind of that kind of attitude that built up around basically criticising Brussels and coming up with reasons why it was being ridiculous kind of grew and grew and, and fluctuated. It, it was um, very much you know a factor in the metric martyrs, for example, and it very much created an us and them uh, culture. Uh, and also. I work in the, in the lobby in Parliament, and when you write about um, MPs in Westminster, you build up a relationship with those MPs. Uh, you're much more accountable for what you write about those. You might get ticked off by Downing Street if you write something that is inaccurate. Um, you might even, even if you've done something that's not inaccurate, you might get blacklisted from interviews. Um, that's happened to, to uh, organisations before, um, just for being combative. Whereas Europe, it was a kind of free hit. And then what happened was that, obviously, we had the, the immigration issue. And there's some brilliant research that was done, and I, I, we mentioned it in the book, and I can't remember who did it, looking at front pages of newspapers and the number of positive uh, messages about immigration compared to the, the, the number of negative ones. And as you can imagine, there was very, very few uh, newspapers that, that, that ran positive stories about immigration. They were 90% or whatever negative. And what's interesting is that also immigration was very, very consistently on the front pages of newspapers. And I think it was uh, the only... Uh, the only time when immigration was seen in a sympathetic light uh, of recent times was, of course, when that terrible tragedy happened uh, in the Mediterranean, that young boy washed up on the sands, uh, having tried to cross uh, the Mediterranean. And I think there was one newspaper that didn't run that image, and it was the Daily Express, which normally runs stories about immigration. 
So oh, just one other point about that, of course. If you've built up a readership where you've criticised Europe for 20 years, when it comes to the referendum, you're very unlikely to join the campaign to remain because your readers aren't going to believe you because what have you been telling them for 20 years? So it was unsurprising that quite a lot of newspapers had to, for the sake of keeping their readers on board, had to join the Leave campaign. Okay, now we're running out of time. This is one or two very short questions. One here. Make it short and sharp if you can. Wait a minute, wait for the microphone. Great. What were the impact of the TV debates in the uh, campaign on the result? Okay, it's another media question. Have a go at it each, if you like. Uh, what were the impact? Um, I, I mean, I, I, do, I, I do think the Sky News, uh, Faisal uh, Islam's interview with the Prime Minister was quite a moment when um, he accused him of um, saying that if we left the EU, it would start World War III, I think you may remember. And the audience just laughed at him, and they laughed at Cameron. And I don't know if that, I would say that changed, you know, the way that the thing was going to go, but it told us something that perhaps we hadn't realised about how the public felt about David Cameron's campaign. Um, and I think the other thing that you saw in those debates was a kind of consistency from something that was portrayed as a consistency from the Leave campaign. They kept on putting the same people up. They were very happy with their, with their format and their, their people, um, whereas the, the, the Leave campaign, whereas the Remain campaign sort of jigged around, wasn't, weren't quite sure uh, who to put up. Um, you know, we've got very interesting stories in the book about how unsupported the Labour candidate people like um, it was Maria Eagle, wasn't it? Sorry, it was Angela Eagle, who was the Labour voice on one occasion, you know, didn't feel supported by the Labour in camp. So it kind of showed the divisions potentially within the Remain camp. Um, but I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I, th I do think they're very, very important for the democratic process. Whether anyone came out on top, I don't know. What do you think? Well, there were two moments when I realised that Leave might win. One was when I actually saw this graph, and luckily I published a blog on it, and I said, this is why I think Leave might win. The second was on the Thursday, uh, I think it was the Thursday, no, the Tuesday before the referendum, it's at Wembley, and Boris stands up and said, uh, and Thursday the 23rd will be our Independence Day, and the audience stood up, and you just saw the enthusiasm for it, and I thought, this kind of, people are going to get out to vote. People cheered, yeah. Um, and people cheered, and there was this unstoppable momentum at the time, it was for a variety of different reasons. Um, whether the TV debates did anything other than just confirm people where they were, I don't know, but I, I think it possibly made people who were considering voting leave and considering actually going out to vote think, this is it, I, I actually do need to do this. So whether, I'm not sure it changed minds, but it may have changed turnout. Okay, now we've got a couple of minutes to go. I'm going to ask each of you a question. I'm going to ask the same question, but the other side of it. So I want to ask, uh, Paul, I want you to say, if there were to be another referendum... What would you suggest that the, now let's see, the, the, the anti-Brexit side would, should say, and Jason, what would you suggest that the let's, leave, let's definitely leave side should say? 
So the anti-Brexit side will firstly be not the government. Uh, the government will have to propose the deal. And I think what the anti-Brexit side should do, whether it's the remain or return side, and this depends on uh, the wording of the withdrawal bill and whether they can change it to a deal or remain vote, is you voted, you voted to leave the European Union for many reasons, all 17.4 million of you. This deal won't actually solve the problems you mentioned, and this is why. But what I would do, um, what we will do is uh, the leave or the, the anti-Brexit campaign need to set themselves up as an alternative government. The leave campaign shut down 24th of June, which is part of the reason we're in the chaos we are now. Propose themselves an alternative government. Here are the ways in which we're going to address the things you've been worried about. And yes, they've also got to do the British and European thing. They've got to be positive on, on what Europe's about. Funnily enough, if we know lots of our grandparents voted for uh, Brexit and our parents voted for Brexit, we should be appealing to them to, to please vote to remain so I can have this or vote for remain so I can have this. Make it a positive case. I think actually saying... Um, these, these are the policies that we would use uh, in order to, um, to, make, to, to address the reasons and actually prove that they've listened to why those people voted. A lot of people thought the government wasn't voted for them. This is what the Norway campaign did in 1972. In the 1970s, we didn't have a referendum to join. We had it to confirm. Ireland had a referendum and voted yes. Denmark had a referendum. France had a referendum on whether we should join. Uh, Norway, I'm not joking, we didn't have a referendum because it was in the manifestos. Norway had a referendum uh, on whether to join. And the No campaign set itself up as an alternative government. Policies included things like the Sovereign Wealth Fund, which has made such a difference in Norway. But the key was it wasn't going to be chaos afterwards. That's what people don't want. So I think it's going to be very important, positive case, but also ways of addressing why people voted leave. Yeah, well, it depends, doesn't it, on what, what the actual proposition is that's put to the British people. Because as Paul says, the extraordinary thing is we will actually have the Leave campaign will now be being run by the government, the same government, effectively, that was running the polar opposite campaign previously. So they will have to do, in a sense, what um, David Cameron did, which is talk about how great their, de their deal is. And it, by this time, it, you know, it might not look great, but I think what they will, I think what they will uh, obviously talk about is, you know, what do you, what do you want to go back to? I mean, what, we, where we voted to leave, uh, we've, 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 they, people made that decision for a reason. Um, and if you go back now, it's, it's swallowing whole the European Union's control over our borders, control over our laws, control over immigration. So they will play out pretty much the same campaign that we had before um, because they know that that was a successful formula last time. Um, and I suspect that they will, um, they will make that, that case uh, rather than necessarily talking about the benefits of um, the deal that uh, they've struck because I'm not quite sure yet how that deal is going to work out. I don't think anyone is. Okay, well, we must stop here. Uh, I'd like to, thought, to thank uh, both Paul and Jason, not only for their excellent uh, presentation of a long period of British history, post-war history, at least as it uh, directly affects our attitudes and relations to Europe and the European Union, uh, and then for answering questions so elegantly. I can remind you there is an opportunity to meet them again outside. You can rush up there. Uh, where you can buy a copy of the excellent book. So uh, thank you all for coming. I should remind you, I just checked this. I wasn't 
actually just look, doing emails. Uh, Nick Clegg, the earlier mentioned Nick Clegg, is going to be speaking at the school on, I think, on subjects of open and closed attitudes to democracy. So, first cousin relative of all of this. So, that's on the 12th of June. Feel fun, fun, uh, free to come along then. It's very soon. Other than that, thank you to both our speakers. <laughs>